and welcome to Unificant. I'm Irina and I'm now talking to Joachim. Joachim has finished PhD at Stockholm University in the Department of Economics with a thesis called We Are Not Anonymous. Let's start by talking about your field. Your thesis is in microeconomics. Yes, that's right. I'm applied uh, microeconometrics. So that is statistical methods, mainly questions of causality. So that I found very intriguing that you sort of could, by being clever with some data, you could answer causal questions such as how does losing your anonymity affect your behavior online, even if you can't run an experiment. Your thesis consists of four essays or papers, but in the first two you have this theme of anonymity, how it impacts how you behave and also how people treat you. Why is anonymity an interesting problem? When we started this, my co-author, Emma Vanessen, she had just finished a large project on anonymity on the, on the internet. And then they were moving on to hate on the internet. I thought it would be interesting to combine this, especially since there was at least suggestive evidence that there was a lot of hate going on in anonymous online discussions as compared to non-anonymous discussions. And the question is then, if we remove the anonymity, how do they react? Would they write less hateful and misogynic comments or, or would they remain the same? So just to make it explicit, your focus is on anonymity on the internet specifically. What was the motivation for this study? Was there a component of interesting policy and policy recommendation? As economists, we usually have a general interest in policy and trying to say something about policy when we do research. And I think our starting point here was that we wanted to see if anonymity is a good policy if we want to decrease hate. However, as we move along with our research, you realize that basically we're just looking at the cost side of anonymity. So there might be very large benefits as well that you can express your opinion without fearing retaliation. So for instance, if you want sensitive information, you almost always have to go to the anonymous sources. The backside of that is that you get a lot of bad information as well in the anonymous forums, and you also get a lot of hate and racism and just a lot of things you don't ask for. So we are now focusing on the cost side, but I think there are benefits as well. It, I think it also depends on how sort of open your societies. So you think any conclusions that you would be drawing about anonymity from your study or similar ones should be sensitive to more than just the content of these forums, but to the general conditions in society. I would say that the benefits differ by context. I'm not sure that the costs differ by context. Is this the connection between hatred and anonymity a big topic in microeconomics? Are there a lot of people working on it? Hate and anonymity is, has not been studied before. However, lately there's been an increase in the interest in social media in general and economic. So even more, I think, in political discussions and political protests. So there, there are several studies either linking or trying to causally estimate the effect of social media on different political outcomes. And I, I think our study is a part of that literature. However, we focus more on the actual discussions rather than, for instance, protests in the street. You are fitting into this uh, emerging tradition of studying social media from an economic point of view. Yes, I should also say there's an older area in which you study media effects in general in economics and in political discussion. Uh, and we're also, of course, part of that. However, we in this day and age, social media and, and information on the internet is becoming more and more prevalent, especially for younger people. And uh, thus it is important to know what, what information is available there and how it affects people. From reading your thesis, We Are Not Anonymous, I understand that it is actually not easy to find examples where you can compare anonymity and lack of anonymity. 
for example, for groups of people in similar situations. But you did find exactly such a case for your thesis, the Swedish Forum flashback. Can you describe the case a bit and how you found it? Yes, the general problem with trying to estimate the effect of anonymity on hate is that there will or there might be self-selection. So individuals that might be prone to writing hateful might sort themselves into anonymous forums. Can you describe it a bit? We both knew of flashback because it's it's been featured a lot in Swedish news. That it, we also remember that suddenly some journalists had access to a lot of the identities of flashback. Uh, and fortunately for us, uh, we realized that it was only a specific part of the user search flashback, namely those that were registered before a specific date. That sort of created a close to random situation where those that sort of early registered were exposed to this shock that they were suddenly not sure that they were anonymous. Whereas the later users, they were not a threat. When did the leaking of the identities happen? Close to the election in 2014. So I think it was a few weeks ahead of that. So in September of 2014. Just to summarize the study, we are talking about a very active Swedish forum, a Swedish version of Reddit, so to say. And there was an external event, disclosures to the media about the identities of some of the users, which basically separates the users into two groups. One has its anonymity threatened, and you can look at how this threat changes the behavior, and this group is what you call the treatment group. And the other group is safe, not impacted, and they can act as a so-called control group. Having them both means you can compare changes in behavior. Yes, but I should state the important thing in the strategy we use. So we, we look at how they differ, the difference sort of before and after between these groups. So how, how they change their behavior when they go from being anonymous to being threatened of not being anonymous. So by doing this, it's not necessary condition that they are exactly similar in the pre-period, preferable if they are, and they are very similar in the pre-level of hate. However, it's not necessary. The necessary condition for estimating the causal effect is that they are only changing their behavior in the post-period. So the, the change in behavior is only due to this exogenous shock. So that, in, in essence, there must not be any difference in trends in hate between the two groups. That's the necessary condition. You are saying that the two groups that we just defined, the two groups that were defined by this exogenous shock or external event, are not to be compared before the event, but only to be compared in how they change after the event. Before the event, they turn out to be pretty similar. Yes, they don't have to be. And the key assumption is that there is no difference in trend. And this is something we sort of can look at if there appears to be a trend. So by trend you mean, for example, if it increases around the election for both of these groups, it should be the same tendency for both groups? No. <laughs> the key thing is that if they have similar trends prior to the exposure, we would assume that they would have similar trends after exposure had the exposure not happened. So what we see is that there is a change for one group after. So under normal circumstances, with no external event, both new users and old users have the same trend? Yes. This forum must be huge, right? I see it has about 1 million users. How much of it did you look at? We selected certain parts of the forum. We were interested in pr primarily in political discussions, part because we know there's a lot of hate going on there, but also because we think it's, there's a lot of important information provided if you can have a good discussion about politics online. So we focused on political discussions and in particular in three sub-areas. So we downloaded the discussions on uh, domestic policy, immigration and in integration, and uh, discussions on feminism. Uh, how come? Why these three? 
Maybe because the general feeling was that the majority of hate was either against foreigners or feminists and females. And I would say in retrospect that was a correct assumption. The majority of hate that we record on Flashback consists of either hate against foreigners or hate against females and feminists. So what we call misogyny. And how far back did you download? In the paper we focus on the period 2012 to 2016. So we have data up until the 1st of January 2017. And we go back till the... 1st of January 2012. It's two years and nine months and two years and three months after. How much hatred are we talking about? What is the percentage of hateful posts before the event? If we use the measure that we generate uh, using the machine learning technique, which we have not discussed, then uh, in the pre-period, there's around 17 or 18 percent of hate against foreigners and around 13 percent for hate against females in that period, pre-period. It differs a little bit by treatment and control group, not much. In particular, it's, it's very similar for hate against foreigners. Let's talk about how you quantified this. You said you used machine learning? Yes. What we did was that first we had uh, this data downloaded. So the data at Flashback is, first it's divided into subforums. In our case, we have this domestic politics, uh, feminism and uh, immigration and integration. And then each of these subforms is divided into different threads where you discuss different topics. So what we did was that we randomly picked 100 of these different topics or threads. And then we had a research assistant read the first 12 posts. So that's the first page you see when you enter a thread. Uh, and the last five. For 300 threads. Yes, 300 threads in total, exactly. Uh, 100 for each uh, subform. Uh, and then uh, she was tasked to classify these posts as if they were hateful or not, and towards whom. And I see that other than hateful, you also had the categories of aggressive and threatening. Yes. So the problem with these two were that after we classified these, we used a machine learning tool called Logistic Lasso to train the model which words that were common in the posts that she had classified as hateful. And then we sort of took these words and a weight assigned to them, depending on how, how well they predicted hate and apply that to the whole chunk of data between 2012 and 2016 that we had. And uh, the issue then with the threats was that there were not enough posts classified as threats. Basically, it depends on one observation, so we, we don't want to draw conclusions on that. Uh, regarding the aggressive uh, classification, we didn't have the same precision, basically, in the machine learning model as uh, when we looked at hate. That might be because aggression is a bit more diffuse to classify, but we see the same pattern that the aggressiveness of the comments decrease in the treated group in the post period, and that is statistically significant. I understand. Let's talk about your findings. As you have already mentioned several times, you found that the share of hateful posts did go down after the event. The share of hateful posts from users affected by the disclosures. The share of hateful posts against foreigners decrease. However, the share of hateful posts against females uh, actually increase. There seems to be some sort of some substitution going on that people sort of fear uh, retaliation for hating foreigners. And was this happening in each of the three threads? Uh, at the moment, we haven't looked at the di different subforms independently. Okay, this makes me wonder, what is the legal status of hate speech against women and foreigners in Sweden? Uh, so the legal status is, it used to be the case that uh, writing hateful against ethnic minorities, that was illegal in Sweden. However, writing hateful against females was not uh, illegal. So that's a difference as well. So that might be part of the reason. Is this part of what you meant earlier about the costs and benefits of anonymity? What do you mean? 
that anonymity protects you from the legal consequences of your speech, so that the difference between hate speech against ethnic minorities, which is illegal, and hate speech against women, which is not, is not there if you are anonymous? Yes, that might be the case. However, it was also the case that uh, the, these journalists that had access to the identities of the users, they had focused in the past on revealing the identity of users that wrote racist or hateful comments against foreigners in other online settings. So I think we can't really distinguish if it's the law that makes this difference in behavior or if it is the risk of exposure. It might be a combination of both. Okay, the journalists would have penalized one of this hatred more than the other. So they are not equivalent in risks. I don't think the perception was that they were similar. I think the general focus was on hate against immigrants in their reveals that followed. So I think that's important to stress as well, that this was just not empty threats. They actually revealed the identity of a handful of users. And to this very day, a few, I think it was just a year ago or something, that the politician was exposed with having written hateful posts or other things on flashback. And he subsequently had to resign. But who are the producers of hate? The hateful posts and comments, are they written by all users equally or fairly equally? Or is there a small minority of users producing most of them? Yes, so this was actually a bit surprising to me, I think. So I would have expected that it was quite evenly distributed. But basically what we see is that there's a small minority that provide a lot of the hateful comments. Half of the users don't write any hateful comments at all, whereas the other half write some, and in particular those in the top 10% account for a very large share of the hateful comments. You said that the amount of hate goes down for the treatment group, the group that risks being exposed. What happens for the other group? For the other group, it more or less remains stable. There is a small decrease, but it's very small and it's not uh, significant. It's not statistically significant. In large, they were not affected by the, this uh, event. So what does that mean for the forum overall? Because the groups that are not threatened post-2007, they remain at the same level and the groups before change their behavior. Does the, the forum change massively from the point of view of uh, Readers? No, uh, for the typical reader, I don't think there was a big change because those at the risk of being exposed were a uh, relatively small share of the users as well. It's not that they are few, but compared to the vast bulk of users, they were clearly a minority group. So the typical user might not notice a big difference. For the group that were exposed, I think this was a big change. So their share of hate decreased. And uh, in particular, those users that had written a lot of hateful posts in the period prior to this event, they decreased their writing at flashback in general by a lot. I would say in general, the users that were exposed, they did not change their share of hateful comments. They just decreased their general activity. And this is mostly true for those that wrote hateful things against foreigners. I should say. So those that wrote hateful things against uh, women in the pre-period, they just didn't change their behavior to any large degree. I see that you don't give uh, strong recommendations policy-wise in your thesis. But can you tell me if you think your study points towards any policy recommendation? I suppose what you're talking about is real-name policy on these websites? Basically, I don't think we can draw any strong policy conclusions regarding anonymity just from our paper because we just look at the cost. However, I think uh, what our paper shows could be interesting from a policy perspective is that these users that misbehaved in the pre-treatment period, they actually responded to this threat, even though the risk of being exposed was relatively low. The cost of being exposed was quite high. The few of them lost their jobs or I think for them it was very costly but the probability of being exposed was not very high. 
in that sense, it's an interesting finding for economics in general and for policy discussions to see that you can sort of have social costs that incentivize people to behave in a socially favorable way. This is an old question, I suppose. The question of what works better as a deterrent, what works better in preventing crime or misbehaving. Is it having a high probability of suffering minor consequences or having a low probability of suffering drastic consequences? Yes, it goes back to the Nobel laureate Becker. He argued that having a high punishment for a crime but at a low probability was more cost efficient for society. Our paper indicates that there's at least some truth to that. So now that we have gone over your thesis, analyzed the case study, uh, discussed your findings and put everything in context within microeconomics and within these larger questions about policy and policy recommendation. I want to also ask you a few questions about your life as a PhD student and your intellectual trajectory as a researcher at the PhD level. So first of all, where did the interest in this particular topic come from? What was your background and how did it lead you to this research question? My background was that I was always interested in economics and political questions, even when I was in high school. And I went into economics at university. At university, I found theories on discrimination interesting because then you could sort of explain why discrimination could occur. And I also found my main research area now is, as I said, applied microeconometrics. Was interest in social media research any part of this? I think social media is increasingly important in the consumption of news and facts regarding politics. One thing is important to know, what, what kind of information do they find in these forums? And one other thing is that's also important to know is, okay, so what can we do to have good information provided? Is uh, sort of anonymity good for information or is it bad? That is a very difficult question to answer. Uh, we instead went for uh, hate because... That's just someone writing something nasty. And that might be problematic for different reasons. So one reason might be that if you're in one of those groups and you just receive a lot of negative feedback, then you might just stop writing your opinion yourself. That means that there would be less information provided by, for instance, foreigners or women on these forums. Because exposure to hatred or the presence of hatred on these forums changes the behavior of users? Yes, there is evidence. There's a relatively old paper in economics that claims that hatred is sort of something that crowds out information in political discussions because it takes away the focus from the facts and instead focuses on making more emotional arguments against the group in particular. Based on that paper, if we want well-informed discussions on political topics, then I think we don't want a lot of hate in discussions. So I think that was the starting point. Did you have support from your supervisor for this project? I started with this project uh, with my co-author Emma Vanessan and uh, she was very excited and I was very excited. We were excited and we worked on this and then uh, I told my supervisor along and I think he thought it was quite interesting as well, but uh, it was also a bit of a gamble, I think, because it was a very new topic and uh, we didn't know where it would end up. When you're a PhD student, you have the benefit of having a relatively secure position for a few years and to have the time to start a bit more risky projects. So I, I think I was in a position that I had two quite good papers going already, so I could gamble a bit. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> you mentioned you used machine learning to classify the posts for your study. How did you acquire the knowledge for that? So we had a course uh, organized by Professor David Strandberg, and he, he's uh, one of the main figures in the political discussions in uh, media, I think. So he had a course, it was called Big Data, and in that course we learned the uh, skills necessary. So I, I was interested in that course from the beginning because we were going to learn to write 
Python code and how to scrape web pages for data, which is something that we needed to do because we couldn't manually type in these millions of written posts. Uh, in the paper now, we only use the logistic lasso, but we also learned other ad- algorithms. I know people who are doing PhDs in literature. They've also resorted to downloading massive amounts of books with scripts and then looking for keywords. So I think it's spreading. Yes. How we work with these techniques, I think it's a lot of fun. And I think we'll see how well it works in different contexts. But for us, uh, it worked out quite well, I would say. Can you describe how your regular work day would look like? When you get a PhD position in economics at Stockholm University, you start in a program with nine or ten other students at Stockholm University and maybe seven students at uh, Stockholm School of Economics. And the first year, all you do is take courses that are quite tough. The first year, I just spent trying to pass these courses that were basically applied mathematics. Uh, Then after that, uh, I had a year where I took courses that I picked myself. So the second and third year, I spent taking a few courses and trying to come up with ideas for research. Basically, I spent a lot of time in front of my computer reading research and news to keep up to date with society and with the current research. That was a period of some confusion, I think. And then I spent the spring term of the second year teaching, and then I also started my first project with my supervisor. From that point on, I got my supervisor on, because uh, in economics, you don't start with uh, a supervisor. You have a assigned supervisor, but that's just on the paper. So after a year or two, then you get your real supervisor, so to say. And then it's easier to get going. So after that point on, I, I sort of always had some projects that I worked on. So most of the days I went into my office and sat at my computer and tried and ran regressions or worked with data. And it was not at my office, I was at home running regressions or managing data. And then I suppose you're writing at the end. At the very end, it was a lot of writing. Finally, I would like to ask about the future. Where do you see that research on this topic? And in this field is headed in the near future. I'm biased because I studied this question, but uh, I I think there will be more and more papers regarding uh, social media and information online coming out. And I think anonymity will be part of uh, some of those papers. With that being said, you never know what the future holds. There will be important questions that need answers in this area. In even more broader terms, we're still figuring out how to regulate the internet. There's, There's a lot of Uh, policies in the EU at the moment on how to manage data and so on. And I think these are very important questions that economists could help answer uh, or help shape the discussion on at least, the political discussion. So I think there's a lot of research potential regarding the internet and economics in general. Okay, thank you. Yes, thank you. I was very happy to be here and discuss it. Thank you for listening to Neofiken. This has been Irina, talking to Joachim Janssen, who has done his PhD in economics at Stockholm University. If you want to know more about Joachim's research, you can find more information at our webpage, nufiken.co. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook as Curious Nufiken in one word. This episode was published in August 2020.